Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me from her home in Utah County, is my friend Deborah Oaks Cole. Welcome to the podcast, Deborah. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, listeners, when I stepped in this space in 2016, there were a few mentors for me who um, I kind of was looking for people who were active LDS and also supportive of LGBTQ people, and including all the roads that they choose to take. And Deborah and her husband, Don, um, became mentors to me and are still mentors to me. And um, they were on the podcast episode 16. That's over 600 episodes. That was recorded in April of 2018. And um, I just felt impressed to have Deborah come back on the podcast. There's so many people that are new to this space since Deborah first entered the space and I did that I thought it would be good um, for Deborah's steady voice to sh- share her insights with you. When I stepped in the space, there are a lot of organizations, a lot of people, and I kind of had to figure out my space within this broader space. and. Um, so maybe you're trying to figure that exactly if you're an ally where the best lane for you to be an ally is. And I'm grateful for Deborah. Um, Deborah is the mother of um, five kids. She's had a son pass away in May of 26, Marshall. Um, in 2017, her son Lincoln was married to his husband. And so she has a, she became an ally actually before her son came out as gay and married his husband, and I've had the chance to meet Lincoln. One of the things Deborah does, and she's an active Latter-day Saint, is worked so hard on suicide prevention and belonging. She's written about 15 or more op-eds. Um, we'll link to the most recent one in the Desert News about belonging and about Gen Z. She's often on Capitol Hill lobbying for legislation to um, increase the safety of LGBTQ people. And so um, she's just this unique voice, and her lane is kind of suicide prevention, working with the legislature, creating belonging, and um, so grateful for her. She won't tell you this, but she's been spending all day today with someone who's suicidal, and that doesn't surprise me. And that's probably how many days are like that, as she's a safe person to help parents that have a perhaps a suicidal kid or someone who's reached out to Deborah who is suicidal. If you're suicidal, please text, call, chat, 988, um, or reached out to a trusted person. Is that okay for an introduction, Deborah? Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you. So just, it's kind of like us going back out to lunch and just getting an update on the work you're doing, what's important to you, and how people can help in this space. So with that, I'll kind of turn it over to you. Thank you. So, um... What I want to talk about um, has to do with our youth in general. This is something that generally concerns me because even though our youth are a small number of suicides, their mental health will affect them for the rest of our their lives. And the things that affect them really affect the rest of us. And so I think it's an important topic to look at and see where we can do better. Also, there was some concerning research that was done more recently. Cigna, which is an insurance, um, health insurance company, uh, periodically does a study of over 20,000 people and looks at what is the loneliest group of people, the loneliest generation. And it is always, until recently, been the oldest generation. And the oldest generation are the ones that are going to be in your assisted living and nursing homes and that kind of thing. And I understand that a lot of why they've done it is to try and help bring attention to the need to go visit those people and to pay attention to them and realize that they're lonely. Well, they had a big surprise when all of a sudden our Gen Z which is ages 11 to 26, was the loneliest generation. Instead of it being our older group, it was our youngest group that they surveyed. And in addition to that, they were also the loneliest 
Um, they, they registered as being much lonelier than any other generation had ever recorded. Springtide Research Institute, when this study came out, they formed. They didn't exist before that. And Springtide Research Institute formed to study this exact problem and say, what is it? that is different now and what can we do because this is a trend we can't continue. And Springtide Research Institute looked at social media and one of the groups that they compared with social media was people who were never on social media, weren't, didn't have social media basically in their lives at all and compared them to people who were extreme users of social media and were on social media several hours every day. And there was almost no difference in their loneliness. So the next thing I wanna talk about is why is there be, them being lonely an important thing? And that is that loneliness affects both mental and physical well-being. BYU, a few years ago, BYU did a meta-analysis of studies on loneliness. And they looked at what factors caused early death. So they looked at things like air pollution, obesity, excessive alcohol consumption, among others. And they found that air pollution reduced um, somebody's lifespan by about 5%, obesity by 20%, excessive alcohol consumption by 30%, but loneliness reduced a lifespan by 45%, which is about the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's a really significant thing. Another thing that they, um, Cigna in, in their research that found Gen Z to be the loneliest generation, not surprisingly also found that our Gen Z also had some of the worst physical health they were reporting more physical problems than past generations when they were the same ages, which should not be too surprising because they go together. There was a study done in 2020 at the Illinois um, State University and they found that chronic social exclusion should actually be treated as a form of trauma. They found that it's a psychological experience of emotional harm that can inflict damage on the men, on somebody's mental health. And again, that also affects physical health. Loneliness causes us to experience exclusion, isolation, and lack of belonging. And then according to a study at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill said that loneliness often leads people to feel like they don't matter. And feeling you matter is the, actually the foundation of human well-being. When we feel like we don't matter, like we're a burden or like we do not belong, each one of those can precede the development of suicidal thoughts. And that's both according to Thomas E. Joyner, who's considered one of the leading experts on suicidality, and Dr. David Kahn of Columbia University Medical Center. And he's, Dr. Kahn said, connection and a feeling of social belonging is the most important initial step in preventing suicide. Here in Utah, uh, every couple of years, um, we have our students throughout the state take a student health and risk prevention survey. In that survey, survey nearly 90%, 89.6% of all those that said that they always felt left out, said that they sometimes felt like they were no good at all. And it was about the same number, 90% of the students that felt like they were always left out also seriously considered suicide or made a plan of suicide, also said that they felt like they were no good at all. So this is actually an important factor on many, many levels. 
Home and family can be one of our biggest protective factors along with our faith communities. For these to be protective factors, our youth must know and feel that they belong to us. They need to feel valued, involved, and that they can ask for and receive our help. Love thy neighbor is actually a really important commandment. And if we think back to Christ and the example he set, he told us to be sure to feed his sheep, as well as loving our neighbor as ourselves, that it was really important to feed his sheep and to feed his lambs. And that would include all of them, whether they're the popular kids, whether they're the ones that are always seeming to get into trouble. We need to be looking after them. I just... I've written down some things. I listeners, we're going to link to um, a lot of what Deborah is talking about is in her latest opinion piece at the Desert News, from March of 2023. We'll put that in the show notes, and that opinion piece has links to a lot of the research that Deborah is referencing. If you want to f- kind of follow this and use this in your circles, so keep sharing, Deborah. Okay. Um, I want to give just a little more data and then have a little bit more discussion about this, particularly in relationship to our um, church and faith communities and spirituality, because I think that those are actually very important um, factors. Um, Dr. Josh Packard, he's the executive director of Springtide Research Institute, pointed out that Gen Z is not only the loneliest generation, and this is an important point, but they are also the most diverse generation we've ever had in the United States. He said the diversity that characterizes them and is a real value that they hold. This is a critical distinction for Gen Z. And he goes on to talk about not only are we much more racially diverse and religiously diverse, but we're also more diverse when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity. And when we consider that, we've got to realize that they're maybe seeing the world differently. It's just like my husband and I, when my husband was growing up, he was mainly around one race and one religion. He grew up in the Salt Lake area, and I grew up in Philadelphia, where there was plenty of racial diversity. And I can remember during the civil rights movement for at least a few days going to school under armed guards Wow! um, because of some of the protests and things that were going on. Uh, The movie, Remember the Titans? I don't know if you've seen that. So that was a high school. It was not my high school because we moved to Washington, D.C., Uh, when I had just barely turned 15. And the year that we moved was the year that 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 movie is about, the first year. And that was a high school that we played football with. And so my perspective was completely different than my husband's because racial diversity was really a big, important thing. Whereas my husband grew up with that not being a big factor. And we need to realize that our youth today are growing up in a completely different kind of diversity than what many of us experienced when when we were younger. And that becomes important um, when you understand part of a big part of our young people feeling like they have belonging has to do with the adults in their lives. One of the biggest things that um, Springtide Research found was that the number of adults 
that trusted adults, and I want to emphasize that word trusted adults, that our youth have in their lives, that they feel like this is a person they can trust, that no matter what kind of trouble they're in, no matter what they need to tell us or share with us, that they are going to receive the help that they need. And they found that five, at least five trusted adults is the optimum for a young person to really flourish, which I think makes our neighborhoods extremely important. And it also makes our church congregations very important because that's where they have interaction with other adults. One of the things that we need to be careful of when we're making comments about other people that are a different race, different religion, different sexual orientation or gender identity. And I'm not talking about supporting religious beliefs. I'm talking about, I think it's one thing to have a religious belief, and it's another thing to make disparaging comments, to be posting negative things that make fun of people, which I've seen plenty of, and I think adults are not even realizing how their messages are coming across when we're doing that or laughing at something that is in any way related to diversity. We have now made ourselves a non-trusted adult in these kids' lives. And I think that that's something that's extremely important to understand Religion can be one of our big protective factors because in religion, that is where we get hope. We have hope of being able to change our lives if we've made a mistake, if we've messed up something. Instead of feeling like we've ruined our whole lives or everything is over, which sometimes youth can have a different perspective than we as adults have and feel like if they've made one mistake, one major mistake, their life is over. Um, Religion can help them feel like they can make those changes. It also gives them a hope for the next life and hope for having a better future, that there is a way to have a better world than what we have today. But um, Springtide Research found that participation alone in a religion is not belonging. That that um, without belonging, religion loses much of its protective factor against loneliness. And so not only do we need to make sure that we aren't focusing only on who's in attendance and who isn't, but we need to make sure that those who are in attendance actually feel like they are loved and valued um, within our congregations. Belonging requires um, frequent positive interactions. And again, mostly with adults. I've got a friend um, that I don't know super well, but I know a little bit. And he's a sheep herder. I'm not quite sure how many sheep he has, but he has quite a few. And he wrote a story a couple of years ago that I was absolutely fascinated with. But he posted a couple of years ago, he had a sheep get lost and they couldn't find the sheep anywhere. And they finally found it. I've got a picture um, where it was basically hiding behind some trees or bushes and you could barely see it. And he goes into detail as to what happened. And I think that that's kind of important when we're looking at really not just our youth, but anybody who um, wants to pull away from our families, pull away from our neighborhoods, pull away from our church congregations, and basically doesn't feel like they belong. He said that unless a sheep is either hurt and can't keep up with the rest of the herd, or they are actually frightened and pushed away, they do not leave the herd. That's not the way of sheep. Sheep want to be together. They want to be in a place that they belong. And that was the point of his story. This sheep 
And I don't remember the details off the top of my head. I didn't think to look it up ahead of time. But basically, this sheep became very frightened. Um, it had to do with them having a new young dog that was a little energetic. And different things happened that caused this sheep to feel unsafe where they were with the rest of the herd. And it ran and hid. And it took them a long time not only to find it, but then to help it feel comfortable back with the herd. And I thought that that was really interesting that so often we think, oh, that's that black sheep that left the herd that wanted to do something else and they wanted to sin or do something, you know, that we didn't want them to do and we told them not to and it's their fault and we'll maybe be a good person and go help them. And sometimes, and I've seen this, where that sheep has actually called out for help. And that's what he found and what he wrote this story about is that the sheep didn't want to be separated from the herd, but they had been made to feel frightened to be with the herd because of different events. And he said that when we can figure that out, that the sheep want to stay together and people want to stay together. They want to belong. I love, um, there was a um, video film that Elder Christofferson did about belonging. And in there, he talks about that I don't know anyone who doesn't want to belong to an organization that makes them feel good about themselves and that values them. And I think that that's an important thing to remember. It's just like this sheep. They don't leave on their own. They usually have to be kind of shoved aside in some fashion. Maybe we don't recognize that happening. Maybe it wasn't even us, but it happened. And we need, that's why it's so important to go after that one. So I'm going to go back to some of my studies. There was a meta-study done at Columbia University that found that religion often provides important access to a supportive community, resource for hope, ways to get through suffering, and connection to a higher being. But it also found that if a religion leaves a person feeling guilty, distant from God, or abandoned by the religious community, it actually increases the risk of suicide. And so our religious communities actually play an extremely important role. And it's up to us um, how we, what kind of role we play that's up to us as individuals. When people feel disconnected from their wards and church experience, the loss of belongingness actually becomes a major risk for suicide. That's what I talked to Lisa Hansen a couple of years ago, and that's what she said to me. Brene Brown said, connection is why we are here. It is what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. Belonging is in our DNA. It is an irreducible need like love. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break, we fall, we numb, we ache, we hurt others. We get sick. We are profound social creatures. At the root of most of our desires is the need to belong, to be accepted, to connect with others, to be loved. A sense of social connection is one of our fundamental human needs. So um, going back to that same student health and risk prevention survey, the one that shows us that the kids that feel isolated, the kids that don't feel like they're connecting with the other, with our other youth um, and don't feel like they belong that it also shows that those exact same youth are the ones that the vast majority of them, almost all of them, feel like they're either no good at all or like they um, are a failure. They, we, they don't ask about trusted adults in that survey, but there's one question that I found really interesting. And that is, they asked them, do your neighbors 
notice when you're doing a good job and let you know, not just that they recognize that you're doing something good or you think that they notice, but that they come back and let them know. And about 85% of the students who said they felt left out also said that their neighbors did not notice or tell them when they did a good job. But it was interesting because when I compared it to other adults, when whether it as it asked somewhat similar questions when it came to parents and teachers, but that didn't make as big, there wasn't as significant of a difference in that as there was with the neighbors, probably because they wouldn't be expecting it as much from a neighbor. And so when the neighbors did do it, it made a bigger difference. And I thought that that was really interesting um, to to think about. But that also means all of us have children in our lives, whether it's youth at church. And, you know, when I was a youth Sunday school teacher and when I was a young women's president, I was very involved and I tried to recognize when they were doing something at the beginning of every lesson. We tried to ask them what was going on in their lives and what was exciting in their lives. And I think that that's extremely important uh, to do at the beginning of any of our youth activities and stuff to let people shine and give them that moment to kind of talk. But um, I don't have that now. That's not part of my life at the moment. But I can still reach out to neighbors, but also to what for me is now grandchildren. It's important for us to be paying attention to those youth and to be acknowledging that. I'll back up just a tiny bit. Richard said that um, we were allies. My husband and I were allies. That's, and I'm going to give my husband credit where credit is due. My husband was the one that drug me into that. I, I was kind of felt like, well, we don't know anybody that's gay. Why should we bother with that? And uh, my husband said, no, I feel like it's really important. These are God's children too. And I feel like this is an important thing to do to reach out and help. He'd read some statistics and stuff where they suffered more. And all it took was for me to hear some stories, some personal stories. And I said, oh my gosh, I guess I've never thought about just how we talk. And I have to admit, I've made some comments. I never posted unkind things on Facebook or social media, but there were little comments that I would occasionally make that I wish that I had not. And when I heard those personal stories, um, it absolutely broke my heart. And so that's when we got involved. And initially, I was starting to think, well, that's because they've chosen this path or whatever. And it was eye-opening to me to realize that they hadn't necessarily chosen a particular path that was just like, I'm heterosexual and I'm very attracted that way and not attracted in a homosexual way. At the same time, there are people that have that different attraction. And just like I can't see myself possibly being attracted to the same sex, um, other people struggle in the opposite way. And that doesn't give any excuse for anybody to be unkind. And it really opened my eyes. And then as I started doing research on why the higher suicide rates, uh, existed for LGBTQ people, I started looking at what causes suicidality in general. And then it became obvious. Um, so this is from that article. Depending on their identity, 75% to 90% of our LGBTQ youth said they felt left out. And that's a huge number. And one of the things, oh, I forgot to go back and tell you. One of the first things that my husband and I did was we decided to reach out to the LGBTQ um, BYU students. 
And because I felt like they were the ones that probably needed it most, not that everybody doesn't need it, but that was that was just a demographic that we identified and then eventually we uh, after a few months we reached out to um, anybody in that general college age range didn't matter if they were in college or not and we started having monthly dinners at our house and that was that was extremely eye-opening for me and i started to realize um talking to them that even if they were not out, that just our discussions at church when we sometimes, and I, I know that I've certainly heard it, uh, where we'll, we'll blame the wickedness of the world on this demographic and stuff, that even the ones who were not out, the ones that were treated extremely well and the ones that were getting scholarships, going to BYU, most of them were return missionaries. And when I asked them, how did this make you so upset growing up? I mean, here you were treated really well. Your dad had this important position in the ward and stake and church. How did it make you feel that way? And they said that when they would sit there hearing some of the negative comments that they would say, you would not like me if you know, if you knew. You only like me because you don't know. And that as soon as you know, you won't like me. And it made for a really unstable feeling for them. And I think um, that's something really important to understand that they're sitting there knowing they don't belong even though we think we're doing everything to help them belong. We need to help them feel like they belong with us and that they're cared about and loved. And I, I don't have a corner on the market of right answers. I, I don't know in every situation what we should or shouldn't do. Um, but I know that we've got to do better what we're doing but at the same time we've just got to work first and foremost on making sure people are feeling like they're a child of god and that they're as welcome as anybody else to come sit next to us while we're at church it's really powerful you've got this research mind the statistical mind deborah an understanding of the research out there but then you have this ability to talk about how to make a difference with those facts in our circles of influence. And then you've got this personal story of you and Don, um, you know, probably, I don't know, it was 10 years ago or more deciding to step in this space. And there's no roadmap as an ally how to do this. You have other examples, but I love the way you used Felton Press to connect with college-age students and invite them into your home and hear your story and become a trusted adult for them and to validate the complexity of their life. More things you'd like to share. Oh, this is this is something that I think is important in what I saw with the BYU students. Um, and this comes from some research. When social exclusion happens repeatedly, as often occurs to people in stigmatized groups, it can inflict lasting damage, and some experts believe that in severe cases, it needs to be treated as a form of trauma. And these are the ones that need our help most. And this is the reason a lot of times our LGBTQ youth feel really traumatized. Um, it's very hard to feel like you don't belong in your faith community, the, the place that you've um, been told Jesus said loves everyone, but then all of a sudden they don't, but he doesn't love you. And the people around you that, that you've grown up with, that you've sat in the pews with, suddenly they're not there to support you either. And the one thing I will say, I, I want to make really clear, I don't want people to think I'm being critical of my um, my congregation. One thing that was really powerful for me 
was when our son came out uh, and he was a return missionary and he was almost, well, when he came out publicly, he didn't come out to us until he was almost 24. And it was another year and a half before he came out to our ward. And when he came out, he came out publicly on Facebook. And he did it. He came out as gay by announcing his engagement to his husband. And he, this was back in 2016 when he announced his engagement. And I didn't know how people in the ward were going to react. And I didn't, I, I was concerned about that, uh, especially where he had actually, and this did not happen in our ward. He was in a, a different ward living away from home. And when he actually stepped away from the church, had to do with he was living um, he was living in a different ward and away from us. He had a full-time job and working. And so often at church, um, the political climate was, uh, there was a lot going on in the political climate at the time about um, gay marriage and stuff. It was around the time of the Supreme Court ruling. And so there was a, a lot of discussion about it. It was getting brought up in classes and stuff and not in positive ways. A lot of negative things were being said about um, uh, gay people. And it felt to me like he was more shoved out of the church. Uh, it, it literally came down to him just really not feeling welcome at church at all. And even though he had had no plans of leaving the church or anything like that, <clears throat> he wasn't sure long term how, you know, what did the future look like for him, but he had been planning on staying in the church. And then there was so much negativity that he, without even selling the contract for his apartment, he moved because he needed to move immediately. And then he worked on selling the contract and quit attending church because of all the negativity. And then it was about, I don't know, not quite a year later that he announced his engagement. And I wasn't sure how things were going to go in my ward when he posted it publicly on Facebook. And to many people's credit, uh, there were no negative comments. Uh, people posted and just expressed their love for him. And I think, you know, lots of people feel like they couldn't say congratulations, which, you know, I can understand that, but we can certainly always express our love. And then when he, um, when he actually got married, many people in our ward and stake came and made sure he knew that they loved him. And have some of them still will occasionally keep in contact his old young men's leaders and let Good. him know that they love him still. And I think that's such a fine example of what we should do. There's another uh, gay couple in our stake um, that got married. I don't know that they live in our stake anymore but they were living in the parents' basement. And I know that their bishop made sure that they knew they were going to be welcome at church anytime that they came. And I think we need to remember that, you know, anybody's membership status or anything else is none of our business. Um, we're just there to make sure that the people who come into that chapel know that they're welcomed and loved. And I've, I thought that that was just one of the finest examples we could have had uh, was the way that our ward handled it. And that doesn't mean that everybody was perfect and we all got to learn how to forgive and to still get along and to love each other and help each other along this journey. And I think that that's how it should be. And we shouldn't expect everybody to be perfect either and do it all perfectly. We're all there learning together. I love... I. Your story was so transforming for me. It was the first probably same-sex marriage and understanding how a ward could support you and um, Lincoln and his husband. And 
I remember you talking about that way back on episode 16 in 2018. And um, I just recognize that in my feeling, your ward and your family just honored our doctrine to love people. We didn't sell out anything to do what your ward and what your family did. We just sometimes don't know how to do that. And to me, to fully love and follow God, we don't need to stop loving some of his children. Those aren't commandments in conflict. I think I also remember a really tender story that Lincoln and his fiance were leaving a family event and Marshall wanted to say goodbye to them and left the family event and walked to the car. Um, and uh, let it, me tell you that story because tell, that was such a tender story. Marshall since passed away and you'll talk about that. Will you tell our listeners that story? Yeah, that, um, so like I said, everything wasn't perfect. Our family, we tried to make sure Lincoln felt as welcome in our family as anybody else and that we loved Robert and we wanted them to be their marriage to be as successful as anybody else's marriage in the family and uh we Margaret well most of us are are fairly devout and Marshall was very devout and you have to understand Marshall had known he had a chronic illness and he knew he was going to die young um at, at the time that Lincoln announced his engagement, uh, Marshall had already lived a few years longer than the average life expectancy for his chronic illness. And so Marshall was very concerned. Uh, he was such a good person and very concerned with always making the right choice and always um, making sure that he was doing what would please God because he, for him, the afterlife wasn't something, you know, 30 or 40 years into the future. It could literally be, you know, the next year, the year after. And he didn't know how to react to the news that Lincoln was engaged. And initially, uh, when Lincoln announced the engagement, um, he got up from, he kind of stormed out of the room. Uh, he didn't say anything, but he just kind of stormed out of the room and didn't say a word. And I went and talked to our stake president, who was a very kind, very loving person. And he just talked about how important it was that we maintain our family unity and to love. And I went home and shared that with Marshall. Uh, one of my daughters, who was a temple worker at the time, talked to her um, bishop, and he had the exact same mes message. He said, you need to make sure that your brother knows how much he is loved and still very much a part of the family. And um, she tried to talk to Marshall as well. And Marshall just didn't know how to react. And, and the few times that Lincoln and Robert came over after that, he kept his distance. And he would hardly say anything to Robert. And just really didn't know what to do. Well, we had a state conference. It was um, I believe it was the 1st of May, we had a state conference and the visiting general authority and my state president gave a really great talk. Um, he used this story where the man was ill, but there wasn't room in the house where Christ was. And so they um, tore the roof off and lowered him down. And our state president talked about can we tear the roof off and make room for everybody and allow the people who most need the healing power to be there in our midst instead of only those of us that don't need it so much? And it was such a beautiful way of expressing it. And then the visiting general authority also gave a beautiful, beautiful talk about um 
being kind and caring about people and not being cruel. And he talked about that. He said, I don't know what all the requirements are going to be to get into the celestial kingdom. But he said how we treat other people, how we treat all of other people, regardless of their beliefs or differences, that that's going to absolutely be one of them. And I came home so elated from this state conference and I pulled Marshall aside and I said, I really want to share this with you because I had actually waited afterwards and talked to this general authority. And when I explained to him, I was a mom of a gay son who was engaged. He pulled me aside and talked to me for um, about seven minutes about making sure that our family stays unified and making sure that we love and express that love to each other. And I came home and shared all of that with Marshall. And we had all of our family over that Sunday for dinner because it was the day before my birthday. So we were celebrating my birthday. And he still didn't talk to Robert at all and kept his distance. But he must have thought about it because the next Sunday, everybody came over also because it was Mother's Day. So they all came over the next Sunday. And we were eating dinner and Marshall still didn't, he kept his distance. And uh, Lincoln and Robert had to leave early so that they could go to Robert's mother's house and celebrate Mother's Day with her as well. And when Lincoln and Robert got up from the dinner table to leave uh, before anybody else, they were had gone out the front door and were just getting into their car. And all of a sudden, Marshall jumped up and ran out the door as fast as he could and ran out there and hugged Lincoln and then went over and hugged Robert. And he, he said, you can't leave without my hugging my new little brother. <laughs> and then they left. And exactly one week later, Marshall passed away. That moment when he ran out and told him that he loved him and told Robert that he loved him and was glad to welcome him into the family was literally the last moment that Marshall saw them before he passed away. And the difference that that has made to our family is so enormous because it's always made us feel like we were unified. It didn't feel like Marshall passed away and you know there was some contention when he passed away. Instead, our whole family felt unified and still feels unified. And that if Marshall, we feel like if Marshall were here, that unity would still be here. And I think that we need to realize how important that is, that we don't know how long somebody's going to live. And even though Marshall had been sick for a long time, we knew he was going to die young. His health didn't seem that much different than it had for 10 years. We had, we had no idea he would even die that year. And that had a huge impact on me because I also got to see the impact that are making sure Lincoln felt loved and made on our family unity because before he came out, he didn't know that we were going to love him. He was afraid that we wouldn't, unfortunately for me, because of things I had said, not real cruel things, but unnecessary things. And he did pull away and it did affect our family unity. And I just didn't even know why he was doing that. So all of this really affects all of our health because it affects our connection as well and our belonging and unity as a family, which affects both our mental and physical health. Well, that put tears in my eyes again. Remembering that story of Marshall leaving your Mother's Day table and running out and giving Lincoln and Robert a big hug. And those words, glad to have a new little brother. And Robert, 
and Lincoln know that experience happened with Marshall, and Marshall knows that he got to share those thoughts in mortality and doesn't have to wait to share that in the next life. And the peace that perhaps brings to Marshall, knowing that he got up from the table and had that conversation. Um, that's a beautiful family love story moment. It's a credit to you as parents. Um, and get well, but big. I also think it's a huge credit to, um, it, it was a huge credit to our stake president and also to that general authority because I needed somebody from the church helping Marshall feel that way, if that makes sense. But that also, that's actually important that they express that love. Yeah, I love um, the visual of tearing off the roof to make room for everybody. And um, my wife and I were in Israel, and David Butler was talking about that story in Israel and how unusual it would be to do what um, those people did and what a typical person might do that would be in charge of that meeting. And that was way out of protocol. And they might have looked through the rule book and said, wait a second. But um, those people wanted that person healed and knew they needed to tear off the roof to get them to Christ. And Christ, when he saw that person, healed that person. And and so we sometimes get so caught up in procedure and order and that we forget to love people because we're so concerned about procedures and order and it's kind of that stuff that the scribes and the Pharisees got cut up in in Jesus's day. And and so I love what your stake president did in your visiting authority. They didn't sell out our doctrine to do that. They just taught our doctrine. No. And exactly. I think sometimes we're so busy defending <laughs> our doctrine that we forget to live it. It <laughs> it reminds me there's a story of Jesus and he's with his disciples, and his disciples were really hungry, and it was the Sabbath, and they went and gleaned some of the leftover grain in a field and you know whoever the sabbath police were uh were right there to let them know that they were breaking the sabbath and christ referred back to the old testament uh at a time that king david had taken some of his soldiers in and they'd eaten the shoe bread that was intended for a ritual and um he said people you know, the message basically was people are more important than rituals. I mean, not that you would normally eat the shoe bread or that you would normally break the Sabbath, but we've got to first consider people's needs, needs to be number one. I love this whole podcast. Um, I wrote down some things. Um, people feel they need to matter. Um, and in a faith community, how important that is. And a faith community can provide hope, as you point out, and they need to feel like they belong. And if someone separates themselves from a faith community, um, Lincoln has, I assume he's not attending, um, then the family, not then, the family should be this way anyway, needs to be that place of belonging and that you matter. And, and even if the faith community in this situation can't fully meet, a couple, a same-sex couple, they can welcome to attend church, but their chance to participate and belong is muted being in a same-sex marriage, and that's just the reality of the teachings of the church. But then what do we do? Well, then the role of the family and the role of the community and the role of the neighborhood and the role of the workplace and all these different circles that can create a feeling that you belong and you matter and who you are is important and we welcome you. And so I think I love your point about five trusted adults. I've never had a lesson on what I could do to become a trusted adult when I had kids at home. Um, and I just want to redo that part of my life because I would role play to my kids, you know, okay, if these are the family rules, but if, if you, if this is the reality of your life, as far as breaking the law or the word of wisdom or the law of chastity, this is how I will respond as your father. Um, and, and take the unknown of that situation out of their mind so they already know. 
how I'm going to respond. And the first thing I'll say is thanks for the courage to tell me. And my respect for you actually went up a few notches because you had the courage to tell me. And we both know what you did was, you know, outside of the family rules, outside the teachings of the church, but let's walk this road together. How can I help you? Um, And just so a kid, oh, knows how mom and dad are going to respond. Now, coming out as gay or trans isn't a sin or against church teachings or family teachings. But to your point, I could role play that with my kids. I don't think it's going to confuse my straight kids into being not straight by saying, this is how I respond if you come out. But I think, um, you know, if you're a local ward leader, um, you could talk in your ward council about how can we create a culture that and this is the line I wrote down so that someone knows if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me and go on the assumption there are queer youth in your ward. And they think that if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. And they go to bed with that thought in their brain and they wake up with that thought in their brain and they may hear things about people like them that confirms that conclusion. So what can we say in a ward council? let's counsel together as a ward counselor, a young woman's presence or a young men's presence or even an elder's quorum. Um, for, and what can we do to, to help queer people feel that, okay, they'd actually like me. Um, and a lot of that's obvious. We just don't make jokes about queer people. We say kind things about queer people. We recognize the complexity of their road and we create empathy, compassion, understanding. And we might even say, if you come out, um, this is how I will respond as your bishop, as your own woman's president, as your Relief Society president. And so people know that ahead of time, and then they feel like they matter and they belong and there's a place for them. And someone will walk with them in the complexities of their life. So there's a lot of things, you know, that people can take your personal story that's powerful and brought tears to my eyes plus all the research and your long view of this space and say, what can I do in my circle of influence as a parent, as a friend, as a local church leader to act on the impressions you felt during this podcast um, to make a difference in your circle of influence? More thoughts, Deborah, you'd like to share? Yeah. So um, there's another story about Marshall that I thought of while you were talking just then that I think is important. Um, so Marshall was in a situation where feeling like he belonged in his ward wasn't always easy. He was, um, there weren't, you know, going to church and feeling like he bonded, you know, or had things in common with other kids. He would, you know, the other youth, he was in a young single adults ward, um, in the, I mean, he lived in, he lived in our basement and went to a young single adults ward. And sometimes people could be not very nice, and he'd come home pretty upset. Um, People make fun of the fact that he lived in his parents' basement, not knowing that he was sick. You couldn't look at him until he was ill. And so um, sometimes people would uh, make fun of that, ask him what he was doing for a real job and uh, different things, make comments. and just make him feel bad. He also wasn't married, but he was, uh, he had just barely turned 31 when he got married. Sometimes there were thoughtless things said about him not filling his priesthood duty by not getting married, which was extremely hurtful to him because he could hardly get a girl to go on a date because he wanted to marry somebody, you know, that had such a short life expectancy. And so that was actually very hurtful to him. And I actually went to our, uh, I can't remember exactly what happened. There were a couple of different things that had happened, but there was some event that triggered me to go to our ward bishop. Uh, I called the church office building, explained some of the problems, and they said, well, your ward bishop is actually the, you know, bishop that is over that. Let him talk to the YSA ward. And so I went to my bishop and discussed that. And I didn't know it, but all of a sudden things got better for Marshall. And he came home so much happier and 
He talked about some of the conversations he had with people at church. And we, he didn't seem to have that happen anymore. And it wasn't until the viewing, when he had his viewing, somebody from his bishopric came through and told me for the first time that what they had done was that made, they made sure that somebody went and talked to Marshall every single Sunday, asked him how he was doing, made him feel important talked about some of his opinions on things and that kind of thing. But most important, they tried to talk to him, have at least one person talk to him before he left home to go home to make sure nothing negative had happened so that they could counter that and make sure that his experience at church was positive. And I realize we can't do that with every single person, but what if I, I would love to see discussions in every ward and branch in the church of who can we make sure that they're, you know, having a good Sunday and how can each one of us reach out to each other and make sure that everybody else had a good Sunday and what a difference that would make if if we said these are people that might feel ostracized and they're different for whatever reason. You know, for my son, it was um, a disability. For somebody else, you know, it's LGBT. For somebody else, it might be something different. But what if we looked for those particular things? Um, because it made a huge difference for Marshall. And I, like I said, I had no idea they were doing it. I just knew that him coming home upset ended after I talked to my bishop, and I'd never even asked what they'd done. I have a quote from President Uchtdorf that I, ought, I absolutely love. Um, it wasn't from a conference talk, so a lot of people haven't heard it. And it is weak, and he gave it when he was President Uchtdorf. Um, we could cover the earth with members of the church, put meeting a meeting house on every corner, dot the land with temples, fill the earth with copies of the Book of Mormon, send missionaries to every country, and say millions of prayers. But if we neglect to grasp the core of the gospel message and fail to help those who suffer or turn away those who mourn, if we do not remember to be charitable, we are as waste which the refiners do cast out. Without this transformational work of caring for our fellow man, unless we care for one another temporally as well as spiritually, we cannot please God and it is impossible to become a people of Zion. I love that. What a great quote. I, I love it. It's kind of a twist on uh, the one in the scriptures about if uh, yeah, that I could have the faith to move mountains and all of that, give all of my things away to the poor, but if I do not have charity. But it puts it in a more modern setting. Deborah Oaks Co., um, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Um, thank you for the trailblazing work. You've been in this space a long time, and you've been personally helpful to me as I stepped in the space and helpful to so many people. Um, mentoring other allies, parents of LGBTQ kids, what you're doing at uh, the legislature and the op-eds you're writing. And within this podcast is a story, be the ally that you can do that's unique to you. Don't be Deborah Coe, don't be Richard Osler. You've got to do what is right for you. And I was reading in Nephi 4.6, not Nephi sort of said this phrase, I'm paraphrasing, not knowing beforehand how I would do this. Um, and so a lot of times we don't know beforehand, but we follow the example of Nephi and be led by the Spirit. And you've been very Spirit-led in what you're doing, and I've tried to do that. And so there's a message for allies and parents, um, as well as LGBTQ people. Um, we need you. Straight people just don't exist to learn empathy and compassion from queer people. Queer people exist to make this world a better place. Um, this world is better with Lincoln and Robert in it and the lives they're living, their contributions to society 
um, and the good that they are and bringing. And so um, Deborah and I um, love the queer people in our lives and recognize the value you bring to us and to society as a broader whole. And the world is better off with you here and your contributions. In the show notes, we'll link, we'll find this sheep story and we'll link in the show notes. We'll link to Deborah Coe's March op-ed in the Desert News. I'll link to episode 16 if you want to hear her first episode way back in April of 2018. It was one of the first podcasts we did. You can Google Deborah Oaks Co. and pull up. She's probably done 15 or more of these op-eds that are on LDS Living, Meridian, Desert News. If you want to get more of a feel of the research, particularly the LGBTQ research and the belonging and why people don't feel they belong and what we can do to help people. Um, that's one of the one of your core expertise in this space. So you're awesome, and your husband's awesome, and the whole Coe family is awesome. Thank you, Deborah Coe. Well, thank you. We thank the world of you too. And um, Deborah Oaks Coe and Oak Oaks Coe. It is Oaks, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's Oaks. And mm-hmm. um, Coe and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>